You're going to love this. Just love it. Radios, KPFK in Los Angeles. This is the broadcast as heard on 90.7 FM in LA, 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Oregon Central Coast, coast to coast and around the globe on KPFK.org. On the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation. Radio or not, Radio Free Brooklyn and Radio Sputnik five days a week. This is your broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all around. Swell fellow, says me, if not you, from bradblog.com with another action-packed uh, jammed adventure that we like to call the broadcast. Um we're going to get to a uh, very excited about this. Looking forward to speaking with uh, Mark Klein momentarily. You're not going to want to miss the conversation. We've got a new story that came out over the weekend based on Edward Snowden documents. You know, for a long time, uh, I think the very first document that was released by Edward Snowden concerned Verizon and the massive amount of uh, data that they were sweeping up. And Verizon has gotten a lot of attention in the um, in the NSA uh, wireless, uh, warrantless wiretapping scandal over the years. Uh, but uh, not enough attention has been given, frankly, to AT&T. Yes, that's right. AT&T, <laughs> who is apparently listening. Hi, Des. That's Desi Doyen, our producer. Um and it turns out the in these new documents, we find out what, uh, boy, it was child's play, what was going on between uh, the NSA and Verizon. AT&T couldn't wait, couldn't wait to give uh, the government, the NSA, anything and everything they needed. No, uh, you know, no court documents necessary. We'll just give you everything you want. Well, this has uh, made Mark Klein. The whistleblower who came forward many years ago, back in uh, 2006, to say that, hey, AT&T was sponsoring a uh, had a secret room in a facility in San Francisco where they were splitting off the signals, splitting off the Internet signals and basically allowing the NSA to trap everything that was coming in. Well, now we've got new documents that further vindic uh, vindicate Mark Klein and his claims as a whistleblower back in 2006. And he will be joining us in just a few minutes uh, to talk about those documents and his experience blowing the whistle on the NSA and on AT&T. Yes, that's right. Uh, so you're not going to want to miss that. Also, Desi Doyen will be with us a little bit later to uh, discuss the latest Green News report and the Obama administration, which has now given final approval 
for Shell to uh, begin the drilling. Begin drilling in the Arctic, the otherwise pristine and beautiful Arctic. Uh, And at the same time, it's kind of puzzling, but uh, Barack Obama has announced that he will be visiting the Arctic. I think he's the first sitting president. Yes, he's uh, the first sitting president to go above the Arctic Circle in Alaska. And he will be talking about climate change and global warming. I wonder if uh, from his speech he will be able to see the offshore rig of uh, Shell Oil out there. Uh, Maybe there'll be a spill between now and then and... uh, Barack Obama can help clean it up personally. Anyway, we'll talk about that in the Green News Report. That and the fact that July is the hottest uh, July, this July 2015 is the hottest July on record. No matter what, no matter how many times Ted Cruz says the world is cooling. Uh, We got a monster El Nino heading uh, towards us in the Pacific. So all kinds of stuff ahead with Desi Doyen, uh, as well as Mark Klein. Yesterday, I was talking about, I was going on and on. About the fact, and it is a fact, that the Republican Party is no longer a legitimate party. They they have no governing philosophy. They're making it up as they go along. It's not. It's no longer about my disagreeing with any of their philosophies. It's that they have none. It's that they're just making stuff up. They have. They don't believe in. They they'll tell you they're conservatives. They're not conservative. They'll tell you they believe in big government. They don't believe in a smaller government. They'll tell you they're, uh, they believe in the Constitution. They don't give a damn about the Constitution. We played some audio from Scott Walker, Governor Scott Walker from Wisconsin, talking about ending birthright citizenship in this country. That's the 14th Amendment, Section 1. For those of you playing along at home who don't know the U.S. Constitution, apparently Scott Walker doesn't talk about it because he, he doesn't know about it because he didn't talk about a constitutional amendment that would be required to undo the 14th Amendment. That allows anyone who is born on U.S. soil to uh, become to to be a a, a U.S. citizen at that point. Donald Trump has now called for ending birthright citizenship as part of his immigration plan released over the weekend. I think Chris Christie has called for it as well. It's now a Republican thing End birthright citizenship. It's not enough to to be born here. To make you a citizen, you have to jump through additional other hoops that uh, I'm not really, we don't know yet what those hoops are. And the Republicans don't seem to talk about them. Uh, the same Republicans who view the U.S. Constitution as sacrosanct. Now they're now they don't care about it, but they don't tell their followers that they don't tell their followers that to do away with birthright citizenship. We need a constitutional amendment. Uh, Sahil Kapoor, a journalist now over at uh, Bloomberg, I believe, uh, he tweeted this quote from Alan Keyes back in 2010. Alan Keyes, big uh, Republican candidate for president back in 2008. Uh, He was also a favorite of the so-called conservatives. Back in 2010, he was asked about ending birthright citizenship. And Alan Keyes, this ardent constitutionalist uh, and, and conservative who the Republicans and the conservatives uh, used to love, he didn't think ending birthright citizenship was such a good idea. He said, quote, well, let me see. If citizenship is not a birthright, then it must be a grant of the government. And if it is a grant of the government, it could curtail the grant in all the ways that fascists and totalitarians always want to. So they used to think that ending birthright citizenship was fascist and totalitarian, but now, eh, not so much, whatever. Again, 
we're not having a debate about birthright citizenship. We're having a, a discussion about whether this Republican Party has any, any type of governing philosophy at all, whether they are in any way a legitimate political party, and I would argue they are not. More evidence to that end. Uh, this is an amazing case. Uh, a point that was pointed out by uh, Tierney Sneed over at Talking Points Memo uh, a day or two ago. There's uh, down in Alabama, you know, where the Republicans believe in small government. That small government wants to make sure that there are no more abortion clinics across the entire state. That's how small that government is. Never mind that abortion has been found long ago to be a constitutional right. They want to end that constitutional right and they'll make up anything they need to in order to do so. So there is a case down there uh, in which um, abortion proponents are trying to block the shutdown of uh, what may be the last uh, clinic down there in Alabama. And. That case was thrown out yesterday. It was denied by the judge. And uh, this judge in this case, uh, I loved what he did. He uh, and let me uh, this was uh, Judge Myron H. Thompson, a Jimmy Carter appointee, a U.S. District Court judge. Uh, he cited right wing Justice Sam Alito. U.S. Supreme Court Justice Sam Alito in uh, his reason why he was tossing out uh, this case. Well, I actually wasn't tossing out this case. He was uh, agreeing with the plaintiffs who said uh, they should not shut down this uh, this clinic. He quoted Samuel Alito from a recent death penalty case in which Sam Alito, writing for the majority basically accuse those people who want to end the death penalty of uh, carrying out a guerrilla war against what is otherwise a constitutional uh, right. I guess the right to kill your citizens if you want to. So Judge Myron Thompson wrote, quote, At oral argument for a recent death penalty case, Justice Alito posed the question, Quote, is it appropriate for the judiciary to countenance what amounts to a guerrilla war against the death penalty, which consists of efforts to make it impossible for the states to obtain drugs that could be used to carry out capital punishment with little, if any, pain? That's uh, Judge Thompson quoting Justice Alito in his uh, in his decision. The judge goes on to say, because the Supreme Court took as a basic premise that the death penalty was constitutional, the implication was no, the court would not allow the state's interest to be subverted in that way. Here, the, the, here the judge writes, the same question could be asked. Is it appropriate for the judiciary to countenance efforts by those opposed to abortion to create circumstances through a confluence of violence and hostility to abortions in the community in which abortion clinics find it impossible to comply with otherwise neutral regulations because they cannot find local doctors willing to perform abortions or to associate with those who do. The implication here, too, could be no. This court should not stand by and allow a woman's fundamental right to obtain an abortion to be subverted in that way. And this is in response to these cases where they're, you know, requiring doctors must have admitting privileges to hospitals, in which case, uh, you know, doctors have a very difficult time working at these clinics and getting these uh, privileges. Or if they do, their name is publicized. Uh, 
and abortion uh, uh, activists uh, go against them and threaten them and, as you know, often kill them. So Justice Alito says, no, look, the, the death penalty has already been determined. Never mind whether it's really been determined, but it's already been determined as uh, uh, constitutional. So, no, you can't have this guerrilla war, you know, trying to uh, restrict which drugs can be used. That's a guerrilla war against the death penalty. Therefore, it's not to be allowed. Well, how about in the case of abortion? So I'm glad the, uh, the judge here pointed that out, pointed out the contradiction, the schizophrenic nature, frankly, of quote-unquote conservative thought. There is no conservative thought at this point. It is making it up as they go along, making up whatever they want to do, whatever they need to say to justify their own, uh, the policies, the things that they want. And this is the Republican Party at this time. It is not just Donald Trump. Although, uh, you know, Donald Trump exemplifies this thinking. He will say whatever he needs to say. It doesn't matter if it's conservative. It doesn't matter if it's Republican. And the Republicans are, of course, eating it up. He had been a long opponent, for example, Donald Trump, of the uh, of the Iraq war. Said back in 2005, look at the war in Iraq and the mess that we're in. I would never have handled it that way, said Donald Trump. Does anybody really believe that Iraq is going to be a wonderful democracy where people are going to run, going to run down to the voting box and gently put in their ballot? And the winner is happily going to stay up, step up to lead the country. Come on, said Trump. What was the purpose of this whole thing? He said hundreds and hundreds of young people killed. That was back in 2004. Now it's thousands and thousands. Unless you count the Iraqi civilians, in which case it's millions and millions. Hundreds and hundreds of young people killed, said Trump. And what about the people coming back with no arms and legs? Not to mention the other side, all those Iraqi kids who have been blown to pieces. And it turns out that all of the reasons for the war were blatantly wrong. All this for nothing, said Donald Trump. That was in 2004. This weekend, Donald Trump was on Meet the Press talking to Chuck Todd, and Chuck Todd asked him, well, where do you get your military advice, Mr. Trump? Uh, talk to for military advice right now. Well, I watch the shows. I mean, I really see a lot of great, you know, when you watch your show and all of the other shows and you have the generals and, you, the, and you have certain people that But you is there like. somebody who's there go-to for you? You know, uh, probably every, there are two or three. Presidential candidate has yeah, a go-to. Probably there are two nobody. or three. I, I mean, I like Bolton. I think he's you know tough cookie. Knows what he's talking Bolton. about. Uh, Jacobs is you a good guy. You mean Ambassador John Bolton? Yes, you mean I think Colonel Jack terrific. Jacobs. Colonel Jack Jacobs is a good guy, and I see him on occasion. All right, I'm I'm short on time, so I won't go into Jack Jacobs. But John Bolton, Ambassador John Bolton. This is who Donald Trump cites as uh, who he who he goes to for advice. Now, mind you, he doesn't actually go to them for advice. He watches the shows. He gets if he gets his uh, military information from the shows. He watches the shows. In other words, Donald Trump has no military advice. Donald Trump has the same military advisors that I do. I watch the shows, too. Actually, I occasionally talk to a military uh, person. I don't even know if uh, Donald Trump ever does. But if he does... And if he thought the Iraq war was wrong, was a disaster, was a mess, there was no weapons of mass destruction, we should have never gone in there, there was no purpose to the whole thing, why would you cite Ambassador John Bolton, one of the hawkish, one of the most hawkish members of the entire Bush-Cheney cabal? 
David Korn po- points out that he was part of the crew that claimed Saddam Hussein had a mass weapons of mass destruction and the war was the only option. As a top State Department official, prior to the 2003 Iraqi evasion, John Bolton pushed the false claim that Iraq had obtained aluminum tubes and uranium for its supposed nuclear weapons program. He was a supporter of a conspiracy theorist named Lori Milroy, who contended that Saddam Hussein was behind the 9-11 attacks. Before the war started, Bolton predicted that, quote, the American role actually will be fairly minimal. Bolton has stuck to his position even today, writes David Korn, that the Iraq invasion was the right move. In May, he called it, uh, he said, I still think, quote, I still think the decision to overthrow Saddam Hussein was correct. He says that the only that we need to uh, the only way to stop Iran from getting a nuclear weapon is for Israel to launch a nuclear attack against them. The guy is crazy. Never mind if he's crazy. He gives terrible advice. Never mind if he gives terrible advice. He gives advice that is the complete opposite of what Donald Trump says he believes about the Iraq war. And therefore, Donald Trump is the front runner for the Republican nomination for president of the United States. Why? Because the Republicans are not a legitimate political party. They have no governing philosophy. They are a joke. This is not about Democrats who have their own problems. We'll probably talk about a few of them in a moment with Mark Klein. But at least they are legitimate, the Democrats. They might be wrong on all manner of things, but they are a legitimate uh, political party. The Republican Party is no longer a legitimate political party. And the sooner both America and the corporate media realize that, the better. And we can start fixing so much of what is wrong in this goddamn country. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. We'll be back with whistleblower Mark Klein right after this. Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free Bradcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us out today. Don't tell anyone. The NSA already knows them. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Okay, over the weekend, the New York Times and ProPublica published uh, a a new expose based on documents from from whistleblower Edward Snowden. This one was headlined, AT&T 
helped U.S. spy on Internet on a vast scale. It was written over at the Times by Julia Angwin, Charlie Savage, Jeff Larson, and Enrique Molt, uh, Laura Poitras, and James Risen. As the story notes, the National Security Agency's ability to spy on vast quantities of Internet traffic passing through the United States has relied on its extraordinary decades-long partnership with a single company, the telecom giant AT&T. While it has long been known that American telecommunications companies worked closely with the spy agency, newly disclosed NSA documents show that the relationship with AT&T has been considered unique and especially productive. One document describes it as, quote, highly collaborative, while another lauded the company's extreme willingness to help. Well, that was nice of them. The documents provided by the former agency contractor Edward J. Snowden were jointly reviewed by the New York Times and ProPublica. The NSA, AT&T, and Verizon declined to discuss the findings from the files, with an AT&T spokesman saying that the company does not comment on matters of national security. Of course, why should they? After the Times disclosed the Bush administration's warrantless wiretapping program in December of 2005, plaintiffs began trying to sue AT&T and the NSA. In a 2006 lawsuit, a retired AT&T technician named Mark Klein claimed that three years earlier he had been in a secret room, or at least he had seen a secret room, in a company building in San Francisco where the NSA had installed equipment. Now, Mark Klein worked for AT&T for 22 years as a communications technician. He retired in 2004, and in 2006, he blew the whistle on AT&T's then-secret cooperation with the NSA. The company had, as Klein had exposed at the time, allowed the spy agency to build a secret room, infamously Room 641A, in that AT&T facility in San Francisco that essentially allowed the NSA to tap into all traffic coming and going across AT&T's backbone internet lines there, which also included traffic from other telecommunications companies as well. This was a massive tap into the internet. With the help of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, Klein was the subject of a class action lawsuit against AT&T in 2006. But the suit was ultimately dismissed after Congress and indeed then-Senator Barack Obama had voted back in 2008 to give retroactive immunity to AT&T and other Internet and telecom providers for their then-illegal warrantless spying and data mining on Americans. Uh, in 2009, Mark Klein's book, Wiring Up the Big Brother Machine and Fighting Against It, was published. And Mark Klein joins us now to discuss these latest disclosures, these latest documents, thanks once again to the uh, release by Edward Snowden. This time, the documents concerning AT&T and the NSA. Mark Klein, sir, welcome to the broadcast. Thanks. Glad to be here. Really glad to have you here. Uh, I've spoken with a lot of whistleblowers over the years. I don't believe you and I have spoken before, so uh, glad uh, to have you here uh, with us. The um, well, well, first off, let's uh, let's start. D did I uh, d describe the timeline correctly for what we knew and when you uh, uh, disclosed what you had seen at the San Francisco yeah, AT&T yeah, facility? That was, yeah, that was pretty accurate. 
what does this new set of documents then tell us about tel- about the telecom, specifically about AT&T uh, and their secret warrantless spying program that we either didn't know before or, or didn't fully understand or at least didn't fully have confirmation for? Because uh, these documents, if there was any question up till now, it sure seems like these documents uh, vindicate what you have been trying to say for so many years. Yeah, that certainly makes me uh, proud that I've been vindicated by these NSA documents, which, in fact, there's a a line in there that talks about how the NSA went live on the Internet in September 2003, Mm -hmm. which which is when I discovered it. Um, uh, And they talk about the great expanse of the program and how AT&T was just, was not dragged into it. They were happy to give the NSA whatever they wanted. I, I was a little uh, surprised. I didn't know about that. This program with AT and T went back to 1985, yeah. according to the latest. I don't know what that refers to, because there was very little internet in 1985. I think there was a little CompuServe, and that was about it. Right. Maybe they're talking about phone lines. I don't know what they meant there. But anyway, that indicates how far back and how cooperative AT&T was with the government. Yeah, they appear to have been uh, very friendly, uh, and uh, there was one document that uh, reminds NSA officials to be polite when visiting AT&T facilities, noting, quote, this is a partnership, not a contractual relationship. So uh, they, AT&T seemed to be very happy to work with them, and as you note, Mark Klein, well before 9-11, and so much, it seems, uh, you know, of what we've learned about this uh, warrantless wiretapping uh, the programs with the AT&T and Verizon and, and the others, the government has long said, oh, well, that's because 9-11 changed everything. Yeah. Uh, this reference to 1985, again, even though we don't know specifics, is, is kind of troubling. That was, that's been talked about before, but now it this enhances that aspect that, that the government's cover story was 9-11 changed everything. Well, yeah, sure. They, they were angling to get tapped into the phone lines and the data lines and the Internet in this country all along. They just needed a political cover story. And there's been talk, it was noticed, that they approached the phone companies in 2001 before 9-11. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the companies uh, actually turned them down. That company was Quest. Right. In early 2001, months before 9-11. <laughs> Quest turned them down because their lawyer said this is illegal. Um, and their CEO ended up uh, thereafter being prosecuted on uh, charges yeah, they, they claim were not, uh, were not related. But Funny coincidence. They also lost some government contracts. Yeah. Right after that. Yes. So that seemed to indicate some retribution. Whereas AT and T just gave them what they wanted, and it appears that they gave them what they wanted before nine eleven. Nine eleven was the cover story for the American public, so everyone could nod their head and say, "Oh yes, of course they're protecting us now." It, it, well, it, yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't even really buy that story about they're protecting us, because a lot of attacks happened after nine eleven. And they didn't stop them. Then the most notorious one was the Boston bombing, mm-hmm. where the FBI was aware of those two guys before the bombing happened. 
but they didn't stop it. We can go into why, but the point is um, they don't need to collect everybody's phone calls and Internet data to keep track of people. They can get warrants like they used to on people they suspect of something, individual persons, not everybody in the country. Now, Mark Klein, if I understand the timeline correctly, you retired from AT&T in 2004. You didn't blow the whistle until 2006. So I'm uh, wondering uh, how you explain that, uh, the, the, that those two years. And when did you actually discover this secret room uh, 641A at the AT&T San Francisco facility? Uh, and, and what happened during those intervening years that led you to reveal it? Well, I didn't come forward immediately because I... First of all, I didn't want to lose my job. What, that's the first thing that usually happens to whistleblowers, mm. is they find a way to get you fired. Mm-hmm. And it was also a scary time, and I didn't know what the government would do to me. Because remember, Bush's line was, you know, anyone who uh, opposes our uh, surveillance and whatnot is, uh, is probably a suspicious person themselves. You're with us or you're with, or, or you're with exactly. the terrorists. Yeah. Exactly. So... You know, I was scared, so I didn't go f- come forward right away. How did I find out about it? Well, I worked in an office before I got to the main office. Uh, the NSA showed up one day to talk to a, a non-union management guy about a secret job, and they were clearing him for some secret job, and word quickly got around that the secret job was to work in this new installation at a central office a few blocks away from where I was working. So everybody sort of figured out right away that this new installation was an NSA operation. Then the following year, I was transferred to that office, uh, Folsom Street, 611 Folsom Street, and I happened to be assigned to oversee the Internet room. And I got hold of Internet of engineering documents. And I, my part of my job was to connect up fiber optic cables, critical circuits, to a cabinet, which the document showed, ran down to the secret room. So I figured out, oh, I see what they're doing. They're, they're copying the data stream going across key Internet links and copying it to the NSA room. So I knew instantly that's totally illegal. They're supposed to get warrants. This is, there was no warrant that, that could cover this. Warrants are supposed to be specific, covering individual people or mm-hmm. individual papers and whatnot. They were sweeping up everything. I can see that by the apparatus. So I knew right away it was all totally illegal. And um, Was it kind of like when you put a, uh, you know, if you have a, a, a phone line in your house and you put a twofer on there so you get so you have two different extensions of the phone and everything that goes into one phone uh, extension is also available on the other? Is that essentially what they were doing, just splitting it out and tapping it into one room so that it could uh, do its normal, uh, you know, proceed as it normally would across the Internet in one case and simply be tracked in the other? They were using what's called a splitter, which is a dumb device that simply copies everything. Like if you want data going through an Internet, a fiber optic cable, mm-hmm. and you want that to send that data to two different places, you put in a splitter, right. and the splitter splits the light beam, but doesn't split the data. The data just goes, is copied basically to mm-hmm. the other location. So they were sending the entire data stream to the secret room, while the other part of the light, of the light uh, 
data uh-huh. uh, signal was going where it was supposed to go. So they're basically copying everything. It, 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 what gave you the impression, you, you were able to figure out, I guess, looking at the schematics, the engineering schematics, to figure out that the split was going on. Uh, how did you come to understand that that split was going to the NSA? Is it because, I mean, it certainly wasn't labeled on the map, uh, you know, secret NSA room. How did you figure out that that's what that was for? And you're not an attorney. How did you know at the time that uh, this was not something that had been arranged between right. AT&T and the government, and, and it was all fine? Okay, how did I figure it out? The, I was looking at engineering documents. Engineering documents show you how point A uh, is connected to point B or C mm-hmm. and wh- you know, where things go, where the connections are. And the documents clearly showed that the cabinet I was connecting things to had a splitter inside, and it was, the splitter was splitting the signal, and so the signal was going to where a part of it was going to where it was supposed to go, and the other part was going down to the secret room. The documents clearly showed that. Um, how so, was it labeled secret room, Mark? How did how did you? Re- yeah, the, the jargon they used was uh, study group three, um, uh, and this room was called study group three. Okay, and that implied that there were other study groups. And I, I found from talking to people um, that that I talked to the guy working in the secret room, who was friendly to me, that there were other secret rooms in places like San Diego and. And Seattle, and um, we found out later from Snowden, there's been something like 17 secret places where they were doing this kind of thing. So um, they're basically trying to collect everything going across 18, not only AT&T's network, but the particular links they were copying were links between AT&T's network and other companies' networks. What's what's called peering links. Mm-hmm. So that's how you get the internet. So they're collecting not just AT&T customers' data, but everybody's. So I knew that this is just looking at that. That was completely, completely illegal because, as you know, the Fourth Amendment requires uh, that uh, the go- that the government has to get a warrant specifically stating the specific information or papers that that are to be turned over to the government. You can't have what's called a general warrant, which is what why people hated the British back in the 1700s, mm-hmm. where the British officer would get a, a, a general warrant entitling him to bust in every door in, a, in any city he wants, just looking for whatever he feels like. A warrant has to be specific. You can only bust in the door of, of Mark Klein and get his papers. You know, that's a warrant, right? Right. Um, but if you just... If you're just blindly collecting everybody, that's not legal according to the Constitution. Um, and uh, so I knew that was just not, you know, not uh, constitutional. Uh, yeah, yeah. You you uh, you you referenced uh, going live, uh, uh, having a live presence on the global net. The New York Times talks about just to just to give people an idea of what we're talking about and the size of this program. 
that that you say you know you saw actually going on in your facility, but we know there were now other facilities at other uh, AT and T buildings. Right. Uh, New York Times writes in September 2003, according to the previously undisclosed NSA documents, AT and T was the first partner to turn on a new collections capability that the NSA said amounted to a, quote, live presence on the global net. In one of its first months of operation, uh, the Fairview program is how they seem to refer to it in these documents, forwarded to the agency 400 billion Internet metadata records, which include uh, who, uh, who contacted whom and other details, not necessarily what they said. Uh, and was, quote, forwarding more than one million emails a day to the keyword selection system uh, at the agency's headquarters in uh, Fort Meade, Maryland. In 2011, AT&T began handing over 1.1 billion domestic cell phone calling records a day to the NSA after a, quote, push to get this flow operational prior to the 10th anniversary of 9-11. Uh, this revelation, uh, the Times says, is striking because after Mr. Snowden disclosed the program of collecting the records of Americans' phone calls, intelligence officials told reporters that, for technical reasons, it consisted mostly of landline phone records. That seems to be completely and utterly false. It wasn't just landline phone records. It was cell phone records. It was a live presence on the global Internet, email, and so forth. Uh, even 10 years after 9-11, the government seemed to be completely lying about this program. Right. Um, that was the line back then from Bush that we're just listening to a few phone calls from, from no good people that are calling the Middle East. And that was a complete lie and a diversion from the fact that they were collecting billions and billions of communications every day on the Internet. Just one fiber optic line that they were copying carried back then, it's even more now, 2.5 gigabits per second. How much is that? That's a quarter of the text of the Encyclopedia Britannica per second on just one fiber optic line. And they were tapping into, in one office, multiple fiber optic lines. And then you multiply that by the 17 secret rooms they got across the country. So they easily pile up billions and billions of communications per second being sent into the NSA. This is computer speed time. Computers can do that in a second, okay? Mm-hmm. So that's how it piles up. Do, do you have the the do you have any sense Mark Klein of uh, the government recently adopted the so-called USA Freedom Act and it's the uh, uh, the first substantive amendment I guess to the to the uh, to the Patriot Act. Uh, do you have any confidence that it had any direct changes on the way the U.S. government works with these so-called private telecommunications companies like AT&T? Did, do, do you get any comfort from that at all? Not at all. I think that was basically a fake reform, a cosmetic reform to make people feel better. First of all, the uh, USA Freedom Act, as they call it, mm-hmm. did not address Internet surveillance. It only addressed the phone metadata program which involved, you know, uh, they were collecting everybody's phone calls, the who you call, who calls who, meta, that's called metadata. Mm-hmm. And they were collecting it from everybody in the country, uh, from Verizon. So the, the, the Freedom Act only addressed that one program, the phone metadata program. And all it did was instead of the NSA 
collecting it directly, they now are transferring it so that the AT&T collects it, and then, and then the NSA will go to AT&T and ask for what they want, and then AT&T hands it over. So AT&T acts as sort of a middleman. Does that make you feel better? I don't think so. <laughs> well, especially not with AT&T, because in, in the case exactly. of AT&T, they didn't even need to uh, you know, go to court to force them to do this. AT&T, if we can uh, believe these documents, seems to have been all too happy exactly. to work with the government. So that's, that's why uh, the, the idea that there's a middleman will filter things out for, to protect your privacy. Well, ha-ha, you'd have to be a fool to believe that. AT&T gives NSA what it wants. Furthermore, that law does not address Internet surveillance at all. It does not touch the secret rooms. Those are still in place doing what I already described. That law did not address that at all. So the Freedom Act is a fraud, in my opinion. Is that room uh, still there, 641A, and still doing what it had been doing previously, to your knowledge? As far as I know, they invested so much money in it and so much legal expenditure of lawyers I don't see why they would stop it now since they won their legal battle with the help of Congress and got legal protection to do all that. Why would they uh, shut it down now? They're happy to have it. The NSA slogan, according to the uh, uh, Snowden documents, is collect it all, store it all. So that's what they want to do. Uh, and I, I want to talk a little bit about your experience, uh, Mark Klein, as a whistleblower. I've I've interviewed quite a few of them over the years, both for my work at bradblog.com and here on the Bradcast. Uh, talk to me about the, the, the type of blowback that you got uh, from opponents of whistleblowers, you know, who always say that, oh, whistleblowers are they're just seeking fame and fortune or some nonsense. Uh, what, what was your experience like after you blew the whistle on what was going on at AT&T, and, and have you been enjoying the high life of being a whistleblower ever since? <laughs> the high life? Well, <laughs> I certainly haven't made much of any money out of it. Were, were, you, were you faced by, you know, did, did, were, did you receive uh, uh, death threats? Threat? Were, were, no. What kind of happened? For the most part, people thought, uh, people felt threatened by the AT&T affair, and I mainly got compliments for revealing this to people. Mm-hmm. People were grateful. So I might, the only nasty comments I saw were, you know, when you read online, I would have an interview on this or that website, and then some, some jerks would post some nasty comments in the comments section. Mm-hmm. You know, well, that's... the guy doesn't know what, know what he's talking about. What does he know? He doesn't work for NSA. That kind of stuff. Um, but that's about it. You, uh, uh, I didn't get any blowback from the government because I didn't work for the government. Uh, how about from your former, uh, from your coworkers, or for the comp- from the company itself, from AT and T? Was there any issues there? No. Uh, the only problem I had initially was AT and T threatened to sue me mm-hmm. for taking company documents and talking about it in public, and demanded I stop doing it and return the documents. Well, I refused. And they never sued me, and my lawyers speculated that's because they already had enough bad publicity and didn't want to drag it out further in court. If they sued me, then I would, we could countersue them and get more documents, right? Mm-hmm. So they didn't sue me. So, and since I was already retired, they couldn't fire me, and I was already collecting my pension, so they didn't mess with my pension. So I didn't have a problem that way. 
Uh, you tried to get out your story originally through the L.A. Times, as I understand it, back in, uh, I guess, in 2006. But the Times, did they refuse to run it? Did they kill the story? What happened? I know it eventually came out in the New York Times in, uh, in 2006. But what happened with the L.A. Times and why did they not run the story, to your knowledge? Yeah, well, the first report I ran across was an L.A. Times reporter who was very eager to run it. And I spent several weeks working with him in February 2006, going back and forth in email and phone calls. And he said, it's going to be run next Tuesday. No, wait, next Thursday. And then finally, he sent me an email saying, well, the top guy at the L.A. Times wants to talk, is going to talk this weekend to the director of national intelligence, who is John Negroponte, and also General Hayden, who is the head of NSA. I, I thought that was bad news as soon as I heard that. Mm. You can be sure when you do that, they'll just tell the newspaper, you better not run this, or you'll be jeopardizing everyone's safety in the country and national security and blah, blah, blah. Right. So I'm sure they fed that line to the LA Times, and for one reason or another, they just caved in and didn't run it. Um, the following year, I told the story to ABC Nightline. They actually called up and found out that the guy who killed the story was called, his name was Dean Baquet, B-A-Q-U-E-T. Mm-hmm. And he gave, his reason he gave ABC Nightline was they couldn't figure out the documents. Well, that was a pathetic non-excuse because any newspaper would take the documents and hand it to experts, which is what the New York Times did. And the experts all came back and said, yeah, this looks like illegal surveillance. So the New York Times ran it. And uh, that fella, Dean Baquet, or Dean Baquet, I'm not, still not sure how you say his name, he's now the executive editor at the New York Times. Yeah, that was pretty funny. I think a year or two later, he was hired to be their big uh, um, editor at, in Washington for the New York Times. So that tells you something about why the New York Times is so cautious about all this stuff, and I think why Snowden didn't go to the New York Times, neither did Glenn Greenwald. Mm-hmm. He went to the British Guardian. Mm. Yeah. Uh, in just a minute or two left, we have Mark Klein. Um, uh, Obama, who was then a senator at the time, voted in 2008 uh, to grant retroactive immunity to AT&T and the other telecoms once it became clear what they had done and how they had participated uh, in this uh, illegal, unconstitutional wiretap program. Um, d- d- did Obama know what he was doing at the time as you see it? Do you hold that against him, or was this a case where I know Diane Feinstein was basically telling everybody, uh, she's our senator out here, I'm in California as well as, as you, you know, that, oh, if, if they're not granted immunity, all kinds of things will happen. The, the program will shut down and it will put the world at risk. Uh, did Obama know what he was doing as you see it? And, and do you still hold it against him to this day for, for giving immuni- uh, immunity to uh, AT&T and the others? Yeah, I hold it against him. He helped up to tip the balance. He knew what he was doing. He was running against Hillary for the nomination in, up to June 2008. So he postured to the left and said explicitly he will oppose any bill with immunity in it. He knew what that, that immunity bill was about. Uh, and he, 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 he tried to gather his liberal supporters by making that promise. As soon as he won the nomination and beat Hillary, he quickly switched sides 
and came out for the immunity. It was a cynical move on his part, not, not some uh, light-minded stupidity. Uh, Mark Klein, uh, there's there was one correction in AT, uh, in a New York Times article over the over the weekend that I'm, I I suspect will make you and everyone else feel much better about this. I don't know if you saw this correction. Uh, it says at the end of the Times article, an earlier version of a picture caption with this article misstated the number of emails the National Security Agency has gotten across uh, has gotten access to with the cooperation of AT and T. As the article correctly noted, it is in the billions, not trillions. Feel better? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. Uh, And as a matter of fact, I suspect it's probably in the trillions at this point, if those numbers... At this point, every day they collect billions. Yeah, exactly. Every day, and you get trillions pretty quickly. All right. Yeah, you sure do. Uh, Amazing. Uh, Mark Klein, I really appreciate you joining us today. Uh, More importantly, I appreciate you blowing the whistle on this years ago, not backing down from it, and... uh, I, I suppose some congratulations is in order now that these new documents have come out to further vindicate uh, what you've been trying to say for all of these years. So uh, thanks for that, and thanks for joining us today, Mark. Thanks for having me. You bet. Mark Klein, author of the book Wiring Up the Big Brother Machine and Fighting It. Glad to have him here today. All right, a quick break, and we're back with Desi Doyen and the Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Stay tuned. Melting for Desi Doyen in, uh, uh, right after the hottest July in recorded history. But we'll get to all of that momentarily. And we've got an update on something in our Green News Report today. But let's go ahead and do that, and then we'll get to the update. Here we go, our latest Green News Report. It is just looking for problems by going up there and uh, drilling for oil. Obama administration gives final approval for Shell's Arctic drilling adventure. Hi, everybody. Later this month, I'm going to Alaska. As Obama announces the first presidential visit to the Arctic. July 2015, the hottest July on record. A monster El Nino is brewing in the Pacific. Plus... I'm suing the executive branch of the United States federal government. Oregon children sue to force the government to act on climate change. All of that acting and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. The EPA, who's supposed to prevent this, spilled three million gallons of acid mine sludge into the river to the river yellow and toxic. It's a huge screw-up, but uh, Donald Trump said it gave him a great idea how to keep Mexicans from crossing the Rio Grande. So So there's that. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, I have been hearing the promise of a monster El Nino to hit California for about two or three years now, and still no rain, still dry as a bone out here. So pardon me if I'm skeptical 
about the latest claims of a Godzilla El Nino. Yeah, a lot of people are, but we'll see what actually happens. What do those scientists know anyway? (laughs) But more on that in a moment. First, oil giant Shell is now drilling for oil in the fragile Arctic. Despite major protests and blockades by kayaktivists in the Pacific Northwest to halt Shell's Arctic adventure, the Obama administration on Monday issued the final permits for Shell to drill two exploration wells before the end of September. Now, that required safety equipment has arrived on site. In an interview with local Anchorage News, Lois Epstein of the Wilderness Society warned that Shell's record in the Arctic is abysmal. The record from 2012 drilling in the Arctic Ocean was a disaster by anyone's measure. Uh, One of their drill rigs grounded near Kodiak. Uh, There were fires. There were criminal penalties for air pollution violations. The okay was given despite the fact that the U.S. Coast Guard has repeatedly warned that it does not have the budget or the equipment that it really needs to mount a full oil spill response in the Arctic Circle. Criticism was swift from Greenpeace and other big environmental organizations, which have all vowed to continue their efforts to stop drilling in the Arctic. The move to approve Arctic drilling comes just a few days after the Obama administration announced President Obama will be making a special trip to the Arctic Circle to call attention to the impacts of global warming, which are caused by the very same fossil fuels that Shell is drilling for. Obama did not mention fossil fuels or Arctic drilling in a White House video announcing his trip. And I'm going because Alaskans are on the front lines of one of the greatest challenges we face this century, climate change. You see, climate change once seemed like a problem for future generations, but for most Americans, it's already a reality. How does the Obama administration square this circle? I don't get it. Permit the opening of the Arctic to fossil fuel drilling and then go on up to the Arctic and say, hey, climate change is terrible. I don't get it. Has he been pressed by the mainstream corporate media on that apparent contradiction? No, he has not been pressed on that by the corporate media, and there really isn't any explanation for this complete contradiction in policy. I guess we can only hope that once he gets up to the Arctic, when is that? August 31st. Then hopefully the media will press him on that. I just don't get it. In Oregon, a group of American children have filed a lawsuit against the U.S. federal government to demand action on climate change. The nonprofit group. Our Children's Trust filed the lawsuit on behalf of 21 plaintiffs, ranging in age from 8 to 19. They're asking the District Court of Oregon to require a national plan to reduce the nation's carbon emissions that cause global warming. 18-year-old plaintiff Tia Hatton explains. The purpose of the case is to protect our rights for life, liberty, and property. They depend upon a healthy climate. And right now that healthy climate is being negatively impacted by the government allowing and promoting the use of fossil fuel. The complaint accuses Obama and the federal government of knowingly risking harm to human life, liberty and property through intensive fossil fuel use. Is there any chance that this uh, suit will actually work or is this largely just a show suit to demonstrate the problem? It is part of a growing trend to use the legal system for action on climate change. But so far, none of these lawsuits have been successful in the United States. Finally, July 2015 was the hottest July ever recorded globally. That's according to the Japan Meteorological Agency. Just like June 2015 was the hottest June on record, and May 2015 was the hottest May on record, July is continuing the trend. And on top of that, scientists say a major El Nino event is gathering strength in the Pacific, making it all but certain that 2015 will crush the record for hottest year that was set 
just last year. That's what the forecasters and people who know what they're talking about say. But Ted Cruz tells me the globe is cooling. I'm going with Ted. For much more on all of these stories, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Thank you very much, Desi Doyen. Yep. The update, uh, since we were trying to figure out, trying to square the circle between Obama allowing Arctic drilling and going up to the Arctic to uh, to decry global warming, uh, at least that's one uh, circle that won't need to be squared, apparently, by Hillary Clinton. Ah, that's true. She had come out uh, earlier um, after yep. we did the Green News report and said that she was not in favor of Arctic drilling. So that's that's an unusual break for her to make. She doesn't usually do that. She opposes Arctic drilling. She's actually come out with a stance, she says. Yes, she said, quote, she, the Arctic is a unique treasure. Given what we know, it's not worth the risk of drilling. Interesting. Yeah. Good for her. Still hasn't come out either way on Keystone XL Pipeline, though, nope, has she? she has not. Oh, the courage. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doy, and thank you very much to our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn, and to my guest today, Mark Klein, the AT&T NSA whistleblower. We'll be back with you, same Brad time, same Brad channel tomorrow. Until then, if you missed any portion of the program today, you can, as always, download it at bradblog.com, where you can jump in and comment on anything you like, good or bad or otherwise. You can also send me email anytime at uh, bradcast at bradblog.com. And you can find us and follow us on the Facebooks and the Twitters at The Brad Blog. All right, I'm out of here. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Good luck, world.